walking the long road through hell and coming through that, we realized, okay, if we're gonna be these compassionate people, if we're gonna be the people that actually make something of ourselves, that believe in something and care about something other than ourselves, if we can forgive a murderer, are we actually living our lives in that way? Are we actually those people? And the first thing that really kind of came to us was the thing that we're doing three times a day is completely counter to the people that we have decided to become. When you truly come to terms with the fact that you have a limited amount of time on this planet and that that switch can go off at any moment in time, you can either let that consume you, and a lot of people go down that path, you know, drugs, alcohol, any kind of way to numb the, the you know, the harshness of that reality, or you can choose to just crank the dial up as, as high as you can and squeeze as much as you can out of every single day. That was how Jenny and Pavle ultimately decided to change their diets, their careers, and their lives. And this is Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. Welcome back everyone to another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. This week, I'd like you to meet Jenny and Pavle, a power couple determined to shape the future of food with an arc towards justice and compassion. As you'll hear, Jenny and Pavle's story is marked with unimaginable tragedy, the kind that inevitably changes people, whether they like it or not. In their case, heartbreaking grief ultimately led Jenny and Pavle to ask some really tough questions. What is the meaning of life? Who's even entitled to life? What does compassion look like? Although they may not have figured everything out, this investigation of the heart resulted in, among other things, the elimination of animal products from their diet. Now, whether you're vegan, plant-based, or a hamburger-eating carnivore, I guarantee you this episode is one you're going to want and need to buckle up for. We go from tragedy to clarity to activism to the future of not just food, but everyone who eats it. As is always the case here on Are You Ready, we cover a lot of ground, we get deep, and we take a good long look at some challenging issues. But before all that, we start with an unlikely whirlwind romance. Let's do it. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining me in my kitchen today. The smell of blueberry muffins wafting in... <laughs> From out of the oven. <laughs> Tempting while I'm fasting. I know. I'm sorry. Had I known <laughs> that you were fasting, I probably still would have made that. <laughs> I brought the OMAD guy. Yeah. Uh, so you can take one home to save for when you're not fasting. As soon as it hits, hits 6 p.m., <laughs> like the whole thing just goes right in. Snarf the whole thing down. Muffin. <laughs> Please note, some people eat throughout the day and are vegan, not just uh, this way. Okay. <laughs> Well, again, thank you so much for coming. I was so inspired by the conversation that I witnessed between really the two of you. <laughs> it was just me and Anthony just sitting on the couch. It was like, it was like we were watching television. <laughs> and the two of you were talking about the vegan movement, technology, its role in animal activism as well as the future of food, which I know is a big thing for both of you, but especially for you, Jenny. And I was like, we need to have these two on the podcast. I, I want to 
you know, not replicate what, you know, happened organically in my family room, but I wanted other people to be able to hear these ideas bouncing off each other and also understand the breadth of knowledge that the two of you bring to this discussion and now to my table. So with that, I thought before we dive into that, I always think it's a good idea to establish you know, bona fides, like, who are you? <laughs> like, why do you have the right to talk about this <laughs> in a cogent way? So if you, maybe, Jenny, if you want to start with, you know, what do you do? What is your background? Absolutely. So I've had a bit of an interesting journey this last decade getting to what I do in food. I actually started my career in public charity. Uh, I didn't know at the time, but I was servicing hundreds of thousands of clients, dealing with food insecurity, uh, dealing with food stamps, 99% free and reduced lunch, and really witnessing firsthand what the food system looks like on the ground in the U.S. And it was very fascinating because I had never witnessed that in my life. Um, and so when I moved to California, I was thrust into a completely new world. That was Silicon Valley. And so I built my career in Silicon Valley, uh, working in the VC space, working uh, in the tech space, uh, working for a man named Ron Conway. For folks that are unaware, Ron is nicknamed the godfather of Silicon Valley. And so he really minted most of the big kind of tech companies and apps that you know on your phone. And those two experiences of life kind of twisted together in a unique way to bring me into the future of food. So looking at the way that we eat, looking at the food system um, that is currently providing food for 9 billion people at the expense of 90 billion animals a year, and how we can use innovation to push it forward. Um, so a few years ago, I started an organization called Vegan Women's Summit, of which you've been a part for a few years now, focused on bringing the 51% of women in the world into building a kinder, more sustainable world. So we do the biggest conference in the space. Um, last year, I published the Future of Food is Female, now a number one bestseller. Yeah. Very exciting. Not a New York Times bestseller, though. I'm only there. an Amazon one to start. <laughs> uh, and it's the first book about women changing the food system. And I also raised my own fund, uh, Joyful Ventures, which focuses on identifying those early stage opportunities to fund the future of food. Uh, so my entire you know, existence and, and reason to be is really just focused on how we can use technology and innovation to make the world a kinder place. You mentioned earlier when you moved to California, where did you move from? Uh, so we were in Florida for a few years, uh, and so, which uh, probably can explain why we were in Florida, but we really were in a completely different ecosystem. And that perspective of seeing how people live in the South, seeing what, you know, true intergenerational poverty looks like, seeing how people really eat has been so important to my view of how we invest and really move the cultural needle when it comes to thinking about how to change the way people eat. And when you say fund, just so that it's clear to people who are not, you know, investors themselves or, you know, have that sort of vocabulary, because I don't, I'm just very clear, I don't. <laughs> Can you maybe describe what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So I have what's called the Venture Capital Fund. Um, so for folks that are unaware of venture capital, you've maybe seen Shark Tank, Dragon's Den, one of those investing shows. Those are venture capitalists for the most part. And so they raise money in what's called a fund. And that fund uh, goes into a pool of which we then take it and invest in promise 
promising opportunities focused on what uh, our fund's thesis is. So for us, we focus on widespread, impactful innovation in the way that we eat to move us away from industrialized animal agriculture. That can be everything from plant-based protein powders all the way to improving the drought resistance of seeds so that we can be eating more you know, plant proteins, cultivated meat, which we'll talk more about, I'm sure, later on. All of those different aspects of how we can just really slowly begin to turn the needle of changing the way that we eat. Amazing. Pavle, I'm now turning to you. Can you give us a little bit of your background? She started with me because she's way more impressive than uh. I am. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's um, about depth. It's yeah, not about sure, range. Sure. <laughs> um, so, you know, I've I've been building companies my, my entire career. Um, when I was at the University of Florida, a couple friends of mine started a company, um, you know, really a budding music streaming company. It was called Groove Shark, um, now defunct. Um, if you know, you know. People that have used it love it. Um, I still think a lot of the stuff that, that we did back then is still better than what exists today. Um, they were trying to convince me to drop out of school. I said, there's no way I'm dropping out. My parents, you know, they immigrated to this country. I have to finish school. Um, as soon as I graduated, I jumped right in. Um, you know, my friend said, I can't pay you anything, but you can jump into a sales role. If things go well, you can, you can pay for yourself. So I said, sure. Uh, slept on my friend's futon, um, had nothing to my name and just showed up every day, worked for free, grinding, trying to, trying to sell essentially ad real estate on, on the website. Um, that's, that's really, I spent four years there and, and that's, that was a sandbox for me. I got to do anything and everything, um, learned all kinds of things about business, HR, recruiting, hiring, operations, you name it. Um, we grew that company to 35 million monthly unique users. That means Amazing. 35 million different people use that website every single month. Um, ultimately, we got sued by every major record label for a, <laughs> a modest $15.5 billion. Oh, my. Which, which is great. A number like that, you don't even have to worry because there's, it's pointless. I mean, there's, we don't have the money, so who cares? Just keep, keep doing what you're doing. Um, you know, and, and took, had a few different jobs, you know, building, building companies, building, uh, you know, teams and, and things like that. Ultimately, uh, Jenny and I moved to, moved to California, moved to San Francisco sight unseen. So uh, we knew we wanted to, to come out west, came out here, um, and started growing a company called The Athletic, The Athletic Media Company. When I, when I met the team there, it was still a, a pretty small company. So, so The Athletic is a, is a subscription uh, sports, sports journalism. You know, if you want good, high-quality journalism for sports, you go to The Athletic. I met the guys, they, they said, hey, you know, we want somebody that knows how to build a startup that has experience in, in hiring and recruiting and all that stuff. And I told them, you guys have the wrong guy. I don't know anything about sports. I've never followed sports in my life. And, and that actually ended up working to my advantage because they didn't want to build a bro sports culture. They wanted it to be, you know, actual professional journalism. So joined that team, built that company, took it through the pandemic, uh, including when all sports just ground to a, a complete halt. Um, you know, at the time we thought, this is it, this is the end. You know, we did all this amazing work. We built this incredible company. Um, we had almost 700 employees around, around the world at the time. And we thought the pandemic's gonna be the end of us. But ultimately things worked out. Um, we sold the company to, to the New York Times. So The Athletic is now part of the New York Times. Um, and eventually found my way into, into cultivated meat. And, and that's, what I'm, that's what I'm doing today. So 
just all kinds of startup backgrounds, you know, know how to build a company quickly, know how to just show up and, and do whatever it takes. And, and that's essentially what I do for a living. Mm. That's so interesting, your journey into cultivated meat, which is, you know, in many people's eyes, a, an animal-centric industry, right? Because it's at least on its face designed to reduce or even eliminate animal suffering or cruelty in the production of food, it was sort of like, well, I did sports. I did a bunch yeah. of other startups that had nothing to do with food, nothing to do with veganism, animal activism, and here I am kind of squarely in the thick of it. Whereas with you, Jenny, it, there was at least a, a more like predictable yeah. path because you had that background in food. What I'm not hearing in either of your stories, and I'm so excited to hear, is when did veganism become a part of your yeah. lives? Well, I think, you know, that's that's the North Star, right? So veganism's always been part of who we are. We, we found it pretty early on in our relationship. And, you know, in the background, we've, we've been vegan, animal advocacy and, 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 you know, putting the animals front and center has always been what's, what's been important to us. So for me, moving into cultivated meat has very much been the alignment of what I care about most with what I do for a living. I finally have the opportunity to take what I'm good at building companies and apply it to, to what I care about most. Mm, amazing. Jenny, did you want to tell us how you guys came, you want me came to do the vegan story? <laughs> you, you kick it off. Yeah. All right. Should we go, should we do the like in-depth one? Let's do it. All right. So we go deep here. Yeah. <laughs> it's a deep story. Uh, so Pavel and I have been married for 11 years, 11 years now. Yeah. We've been together for 12 years. We've been together, got married when I was like 21. So oh my gosh, that's we were so literal children. <laughs> just, just so everybody understands, we, I was still in college. We were children. We had no idea what we were doing. It was, we knew each other for six months. We yeah, we looked at a courthouse. Are you serious? Yeah. yeah, we're crazy. I had yeah. no idea. <laughs> so, so I think we, we, let's start there because I do think it's important, right? So so we met at a conference, um, a startup weekend in Florida. I was with Groove Shark. You were still in school. I was interning for my professor. Yeah, yeah. we had this. You know, we 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 had this whirlwind weekend together. Um, you know, we skipped the entire conference, spent the entire weekend together. She was living in Toronto at the time. Um, so when she went back, we we just did a long distance back and forth for for six months. Um, we, di we didn't have a plan. We, we thought, well, maybe we'll find you a visa. Maybe we'll do this. Maybe we'll do that. Um, we, you know, meanwhile, while we're apart, we spend every waking moment of the day talking to each other. Thankfully, we've got technology that Skype. Yeah, Remember the Skype yeah, days? Yeah, we before Skype. Zoom, we would Skype. Oh my gosh, we would Skype for like eight hours. Yeah. Remember that? Oh. Yeah, our messenger chat persists all the way back to the very beginning oh, of our beautiful. relationship. Like 2011. Yeah, you yeah. should make yeah. a book out of it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And you can actually read the messages of him going, what if we just get married? Yeah. <laughs> and so that context is really important to understand yeah. because we were functionally in many ways, very immature, very we young. We were kids. Uh, I would say 99 out of a hundred times what happened to us probably wouldn't work for others. I tell people all the time, they say love endures. I'm like, Oh no, it was not just love, man. There was a lot of stuff that happened. Um, so, yeah. you know, early on in our, in our marriage, um, the first year we were married. Yeah. It was the first year. Yeah. yeah. So, so when we went to the courthouse and eloped, you had your friend come down uh, from Canada. I had my best friend. Um, he was there with us when we got married. And, yeah. and obviously for our, at our one year wedding, uh, anniversary, we, we had an actual wedding. I'm an only child. My mom insisted we had to have a wedding. So, uh, my best man, Eddie, and, and a bunch of my friends and, and your friends. Yeah. yeah. Go for it. So, um, a few months after we had our, you know, one year anniversary, we were out one night, it was Friday night. 
Yeah, we, we were at a wedding. Yeah, we were, we were at, a friend's at a, another friend's wedding um, with his best friend. Now, to understand the context, you and Eddie had been together since you were very young. You were you don't have any brothers or sisters, yeah. and so his best man was his brother. Mm. Yeah. He's also, you know, he was also an immigrant. He he had moved here from from Ecuador, and we just bonded immediately. You know, we both had an immigrant story, and we both um, we just hit it off immediately. So, we saw each other like brothers, and we yeah. spent all the time we could together. Yeah, it was almost like when I came into the marriage, there was another soulmate, right? Yeah. <laughs> he had two, you know, probably had two soulmates, <laughs> Jenny and Eddie, and uh, so we were with him one night at a wedding, and. He said, hey, let's go out. It's another guy's, you know, birthday tonight. Let's go to the club. Nine times out of ten, we would be hitting the club hard because, you know, we're in our early 20s. 20. That's what you do. And we actually had a friend in town. Um, and so we said, no, actually, we can't tonight, but we'll see you, to, you know, we'll see you on Monday. And unfortunately, that night, he was murdered. Eddie. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. He was shot and killed. So, um, you know, they went out that night drinking, and a, an actual, a mutual friend of ours um, was had his gun on him. And the two of them, this is this was in Florida, so you know, him having his gun on him, he hadn't committed any crime, right, at, at the time. Um, so Eddie, this other guy, and and a, and a third guy, they were just a regular night. You know, it was like four in the morning. They had gotten some food after a night of on the town. Um, you know, and and they had gotten into some dumb argument. Who knows, right? And, you know, look, nobody, none of us were there, so it's a mix of alcohol, young 20s machismo. Yeah, macho um, attitude. And And a firearm. And a firearm. Yeah. You know, most of the time, they would have just you know, duked it out and hugged it it out the next morning, you know? And And that's fine, right? But because this guy had his gun on him, they got into an argument over something, and Eddie was actually walking away. Um, he had fired two shots in the air. Eddie had gotten upset and said, you know what? No friend of mine would do anything like this. Um, so he started to, to cross the street to go to his car and this guy just held his gun up and fired two shots in Eddie's chest and killed him, left him to die. In cold blood, murdered him. And then kidnapped the witness. And then kidnapped the witness. Yeah. Oh my God. I had no idea. This is all new to me. Oh my goodness. Maybe we'll put a trigger warning on this episode. This is our vegan origin story. Yeah, it really is. We we sat through a murder trial. We're one year into our marriage. We have no idea what we're doing. Lost your best friend. And I've just lost my best friend. Yeah, we're kids. I mean, we are. I'll never forget. You know, the next day, we his friends are blowing him up, and he's like. It was the one morning, remember you said, you're, I'm not going to check my phone. Let's go out to breakfast. And he comes back from the bathroom. The phone's just ringing off it the hook. It wouldn't stop. It was like early morning. It was like eight something. We're like, why are people calling us over and over? It's Sunday morning. What's going on? And, and it was his friends. And they yeah. were like, you need to read the you know, Tampa Bay Times. It's like splashed all over the news. And yeah. so we open it up and... These are these are yeah. two these are two guys with MBAs, very well educated executives. executives you know, work, you know the, the guy with the gun. You know, he had been working at Bank of He's America. An he was an investment banker. You know, he he had a firearm because he he liked having it, and it's just like the perfect storm. All of these terrible things all at once. You know, Eddie died that night, and we sat through his murder trial. And he is now in a Florida jail for 55 years. He's spending all of his life in, in prison. So we, you know, immediately, this was unfortunately not the last funeral I organized, but immediately we had to start organizing a funeral. I mean, we ended up, we had to call people to go to Eddie's house, get a, 
We had to get a suit to dress him. Uh, the only suit he had was his best man suit. So yeah, that's what he, that's he what he's had, buried in. Yeah, the only suit that he had was his was his wedding suit. So the two you guys of them, are still kids. We were just kids, just right? Kids. So literally, the two of them were matching, you know. And it was just the most surreal thing I've I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and we ended up going through a lot of, you know, a lot of like Buddhist readings. You were reading a yeah. lot. You ended up you know, going to the, to the jail and forgiving him. Yeah. Yeah. I went to see him before the trial and, you know, at that time, I mean, he never fessed up to it, no. you know, throughout the entire trial, he, he basically said, you know, I, I didn't do this. Like I was, I was standing my ground. He this turned, is Florida. Yeah. So, you he know, turned it on ground. Eddie and tried to make yeah. Eddie out to be the aggressor. The it was aggressor. very shortly after the Trayvon Martin trial. So it was only about a year or two I'm after sure it had exactly. very recently been used by Zimmerman. So they used the same defense. Yeah. So he did admit to shooting the weapon. Yeah, he just said self-defense. that it was self-defense yeah. or yeah. stand exactly. your ground. Yeah. Okay. Which is a law that is specific to Florida. I don't know if it's in other Southern states, it is. but it it's, is in, it's a Florida law yeah. for sure. There are a lot of states that have some version of it yeah. that I think Florida's is particularly aggressive. But yeah. so you actually visited the jail to... I, to okay, forgive man. him. I mean, it's one. It, I did it early on, right? And um, I, I felt that way. Like I, I definitely felt for forgiveness towards him. I, I'm glad I did it. You know, to me, I, I'm just glad that I didn't carry around this poison with me the whole time. You know, so so my energy was never focused on anger or or anything like that towards towards this guy. Um, it was it was really just kind of you know, managing grief. And, and honestly, I mean, it was the first time that I had ever like properly looked death in the eyes. Yeah. You know, that's the, that's the way I have to put it. Right. I felt like I had confronted it in a way that I had never confronted it before. And that was, that was the journey for me, you know, and, and for, for us and in, in our relationship, which ultimately led to yeah. veganism to answer so the question. What is, you know, this is what we will go deep. Right. Yeah. And so it's really important to understand the the depth of, of what this means in our souls, right? So for us, we are still to this day the only people that forgave him in the murder trial. Nobody else. But even though he still hasn't confessed to it. No, no never. never will. Never. No, he's unfortunately gone, you know, it's Florida. Florida State Prison is one of the worst places on the planet. Uh, and it's unfortunate what has happened to him. And it's really unfortunate that his family, immigrants from Colombia, sold their dry cleaning business, lost everything trying to defend him. Going through that murder trial really engendered so much compassion and empathy in, in me in a way that I didn't believe I would ever feel because it's like a twisted murder or, or a twisted like wedding a murder trial because all of the victims sits on one side and all of the accused sit on the other side. And you, I mean, you're an attorney, you know, you know what um, we're talking about, but the average person, they only see law and order, what you would see on TV. They never actually experience what it looks like. And so when you call recess, like we're all going to the same bathroom together and you're sitting there washing your hands next to the murderer's sister. And she's looking at you and you're looking at them. And it's just this weird dynamic that you just never really um, imagine that you'll ever be in. And so for us, like really walking the long road through hell and coming through that, we realized, okay, if we're going to be these compassionate people, if we're going to be the people that actually make something of ourselves, that believe in something and care about something other than ourselves, if we can forgive a murderer, are we actually living our lives in that way? Are we actually those people? And the first thing that really kind of came to us was the thing that we're doing three times a day is completely counter to the people that we have decided to become. It makes no sense. Yeah, and it's not just, a, you know, that, that all of those emotions, that whole journey led us to discover 
that we wanted to, to, you know, bring positivity into the world and go vegan. But then I think the way we embody not just that, but just who we are as people and the energy that we bring to everything, it's, you know, when you truly come to terms with the fact that you have a limited amount of time on this planet and that that switch can go off at any moment in time, you, you have no, I mean, you can either let that consume you. And a lot of people go down that path, you know, drugs, alcohol, any kind of way to numb the, the you know, the harshness of that reality. Or you can choose to just crank the dial up as, as high as you can and squeeze as much as you can out of every single day. So, you know, I think that's why we bring so much energy, not just to, to the work that we do and, and to veganism, but to, to everything, right? I mean, you know, you have to accept that reality every single day. And that's the only way that you're truly, you know, trying to become the best version of yourself and living your best life. Yeah. Had you had any familiarity with what veganism entailed, even just on a daily basis? I mean, I know that you had at least some background in food and particularly yeah. in the public interest space. Did that help to inform or prepare you when it comes to, this is a pretty radical change we're going to make in our lives? Not at all. So for me, <laughs> you know, my lens of what I did was very much in the public service space. And so I remember being really jarred by the fact that we would see kids three years old holding a Mountain Dew two liter on their way into, you know, VPK. Uh, I remember learning about just how, you know, we had kids with bags on their feet that would come to school, just like what that death of poverty looks like. We would have kids that were four or five years old that hadn't even got their permanent teeth yet. They were getting cavities in their baby teeth, which is supposed to be impossible. But due to how bad the food they were eating was, that that was happening. And so that was the view I had always had of food, was just the harm and what it does to, you know, predominantly lower income, black and brown communities. But I'd never thought of animals. Not me, yeah. but, but he had. I mean, I had dabbled with like vegetarianism in college, you know, but, but like I went vegetarian and then I was eating cheese pizza and pasta every single day. You know, I had no idea what I was I doing. I did the same thing. You know? <laughs> yeah. You, it's an age old story. It was, there was a <laughs> Mushroom burgers. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it was kind of cool. So I wanted to try it, but I, I had, I mean, I was nowhere near making that connection. You know, I was definitely, you know, growing up in an Eastern European family, lots of meat on every plate all the time. Um, then, you know, going to college and eating junk constantly with checkers, meat um, checkers and Taco Bell, um, <laughs> probably my, you know, if they had a membership card, you should own shares. In oh my goodness. <laughs> this man. Um, that was me, McDonald's and yeah. uh, Taco Bell. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I was that guy, you know, making fun of, of people that weren't eating animals and, and, you know, just totally a stereotype. So, so I had never made that connection before. Right. Um, the, the true connection where you actually empathize with the creature that's not a human being. Yeah. Wow. It, it's, it's very interesting too, when you come to it from this view, you know, people say like, Oh, why, you know, was it food or, or was it ethics or environment or whatever? And I said, well, I guess ethics, but it's a very strange path. I'm going to tell you about well, it's a personal one. It, yeah. it is. It's a personal, it's a cathartic moment. And I tell this story very openly. I've, I've told it to a lot of people in podcasts and in interviews, because I believe that the way I was able to free myself and to get through such a crushing thing that happened to me was through finding something bigger than myself and you know some people find religion and other things as well to get through it but I think for me veganism really was cathartic in that pain and grief yeah it's mm -hmm. it's the Bentham quote right it's like 
it's the capacity to suffer, right? If something has the capacity to suffer, we have an obligation to, to not, at a minimum, not be the source of that suffering, right? Not add to that suffering. And if we can go a step further and try to eliminate that suffering, then we should do that too, right? So when you experience the lowest of the low and you suffer personally and then recognize that there's even worse suffering than that, that, that these non-human living beings get experience because of us, um, we have an obligation to put an end to it. It's as simple as that. If, if not us, then who? Right. Well, you talk about trying to find something that was bigger than yourself, and, and that presumably is the vegan movement for you now. I read a study today, one that you actually shared with me. It was a Gallup poll, and some of these numbers were rather stark, rather bleak, if anything. Right. And it indicated that veganism is at an all-time low. We're now seeing that only 1% of Americans identify as vegans, which is already shockingly low. But what is particularly disturbing is the rather precipitous downward trajectory, because it, at least at one point it was at 4%. And now we're saying, wow, it has diminished to a single percentage. Where do you think veganism is right now, today in 2023, particularly here in the United States? It's a weighty question. So I think the biggest peak, I saw 3% in 2018, I believe, right? So we, if you remember 2018, uh, 2019 is when Beyond Meat had their big IPO. It was, there was definitely a moment. There was a wave that was happening uh, and you were really seeing plant-based taking off, people talking about this next generation of these are real foods that you don't compromise on taste. And so I do think that we had an uptick probably around that time because of that. Uh, where we are at today is a very, very different place. Um, consumers have been consuming content that is not positive about veganism. There has been concerted efforts and campaigns from the meat industry to- Do you think it's working? Absolutely, without a doubt, it is. So in 2019, uh, the Center for Consumer Freedom, which is a, they actually started from Philip Morris as a big tobacco lobbying group. They've been waging an all out war essentially against um, the plant-based meat industry since the Beyond Meat IPO. They spent $5 million putting an ad on the Super Bowl to talk about how plant-based meat is synthetic, right? So the way that the cultural conversation was about plant-based in 2018 when we were at 3% versus today, if you say plant-based meats, the average person will go, that's processed, that's gross, ew, did you hear about you know what's in it, things like that. That was not where we were at in 2018. So I think that the consumer is in a very different place, uh, and I also think that we went through a pandemic uh, inflation and food costs are hitting people in a play, in a way exactly. that they never did before. And so people are literally buying less groceries. The premium that's placed on plant-based meats is yeah. just making it untenable. And so you swirl all of that together. Plus you combine the fact that I truly believe like the mental health epidemic that's happening in the United States is also part of this. People don't have that ability to think about you know, what am I going to eat? Because they're trying to cope with the day-to-day -day traumas of their life. I think we're not in a position where the average person can even have the conversation of what's on my plate. It's just, how do I get food on the plate? Yeah. I mean, when we first became vegan, it was, it was very frustrating because you can't convince other people to, to give a shit, right? 
And it makes sense, right? I, I don't think you can you can hold people responsible for not giving a shit when everything around them is also falling apart, right? So so making decisions around what they're going to eat on any given day is not the number one priority, especially if it's you know optimizing for their health or maybe I'll pay a little bit more for the healthier option when you just need whatever to get by, right? We we have to recognize that that our food system was not something that just built itself up naturally over the centuries, right? Our food system was designed a very specific way because that's where the government puts money, right? They put money into the foods that they want us to eat. That's where the subsidies come from. That's why chicken has been rising for decades because it's a cheaper alternative to beef and things like that, right? So, you know... We're in an environment where the government artificially subsidizes specific foods, meat, dairy, you know, you name it, and those are being held artificially low from a price point perspective. And plant-based products, um, even, you know, your, your beyonds, your impossibles, everything, they're expensive, right? Because they don't get to benefit from those subsidies like everything else. So of course consumers are going to pick the cheaper option. That's the whole point. It's designed to, to make it easy for consumers to pick the cheapest mm -hmm options. So, you know, when we're thinking about, well, you know, how do we get people to move towards towards veganism, changing hearts and minds is, is not going to cut it. It's, it's not going to be enough, right? At the end of the day, people don't want to think too hard about the decision that they're making. They just want to pick the option that has the least resistance. And that's usually the cheapest option. So here's what I'm hearing from both of you. And in particular, this sort of very interesting hypothesis that the campaign against synthetic meat is, you know, if not completely responsible, at least largely responsible for what seems to be a uh, disenchantment with plant-based food. And I, and I also want to talk about the abundance of plant-based products that right. we are seeing, notwithstanding, yeah. you know, what I would imagine is a decrease in demand if so few people are actually identifying. So let's let's pin that issue to one side. When when you say that, well, you know, we see this campaign that is cause you know calling synthetic meat processed, unhealthy, synthetic. Who the heck knows what's in it? It's not natural. All of this stuff, and you're saying, well, this is what's turning people off from eating plant based meat and thus being vegan. I think the converse of that means that. Well, then the answer has to lie in meat, right? Like, is that really the linchpin here? Like, we need to provide an alternative to animal-based meats if we're actually going to turn people off from eating animal-based meats? The most successful technologies that permeate into every element of our society are the ones that are a one-to-one -one drop in replacement for something that we already know and love, right? They have to be as good and ultimately they have to be better than something else that we're used to, right? So, you know, if we want people to move away from conventional animal consumption, the replacement has to be a drop-in replacement, right? It can't be something that's almost as good or kind of good or, you know, cooks similar but not similar enough, right? We have to have a one-to-one drop-in replacement. Let's use cars. I mean, it's the perfect example, right? EVs are finally taking off today because they are largely a drop-in replacement for a traditional combustion engine automobile, right? In some ways, they're still a little bit worse, but in many other ways, they're actually better, right? So when a person buys an EV, they know that they're getting an experience that they are already familiar with, and in some ways, it's actually making their lives even better than it was before. They're saving money or, you know, it's fun to drive, it's got cool technology in it, right? That's why Tesla took off as a car company, because 
because it took the what we love about cars, did that, and made everything else better. So if we want people to be eating something else, we have to make it a one-to-one -one replacement or they're never going to do it, right? There's something that they already enjoy there. You know, only early adopters are going to sacrifice, uh, you know, that one-to-one -one replacement. That's why they're called early adopters. They're the ones that are willing to tinker and, and you know, maybe take some, some cuts, you know, in terms of the experience. But the majority of people, they don't want to think about it. They just want it to be replaced for something they already know, and they don't have to think about it at all. They're us. We're the early adopters. Yeah. You know, we're the ones that are willing to do it without the cultivated meat and the impossible burgers. Right. You, you can also read the data, right? So almost 90% of people that adopt a vegan diet drop it within 12 months, yeah. usually within six months. Do you know the number one reason why people stop being vegan is? No. You want to take a guess? Because they don't like the alternatives to Correct. meat. Yeah, that's exactly it. They miss meat and they don't like the food. Yeah. We have to come to terms with that reality, right? I think, you know, th there's an element out, you know, of thinking, there's a way of thinking out there that's like, well, you know, vegan food is good, it's tasty, it's delicious, and it is, right? But you made the point. We're early adopters. Vegans are early adopters to a, you know, multi-generational S-curve that, that is ultimately leading to, to a new food system, right? We're willing to make the sacrifices, but most people are not. And I think the reality is, is that what exists today from a plant-based perspective is just not cutting it for the average consumer. So I want to play the devil's advocate just a little bit here. I was at a cafe the other day in West Hollywood, and I was looking at the menu, and I wanted to order a latte, an iced latte. So I order the iced latte, but before I do, I look at the alternative milk options, mm -hmm. and lo and behold, I didn't need one. Every single latte, every drink in that cafe, it was not a vegan one, believe me, they had banana bread and muffins and all sorts of non-vegan things in there, but all of their lattes were made with oat milk, yeah. not, you know, not a regular dairy milk. And I don't think that oat milk, almond milk, soy milk, rice milk, I don't think those are a one-to-one -one replacement, certainly not nutritionally. Uh, I don't, you know, perhaps price parity on some of these items, but they don't have nearly as much protein as dairy milk. They don't have the same nutritional profile as dairy milk, and they don't taste like dairy milk. Uh, it's been a minute since I've had dairy milk, but I don't think they really taste like that. But now we've seen, yes, Consumers are willing to make replacements in some cases. Why can't that also be said for meat? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think so. Number one is we let's not confuse options with adoption, right? Yes, there's tons more options out there, but I think the reality is is that you know somebody may choose oat milk or almond milk once in a while, but maybe they're still eating cheese or or, or yogurt or or whatever, right? Um, I also think that we have to just accept that what we're trying to solve for fundamentally is a biology problem, right? And I think the mistake that we've made, um, I say we as you know, entrepreneurs, is we've, been, we've had this massive tech wave over the last decade and a half, and we're approaching food companies as tech companies. I do think that, there's, that, that that is a, a valid criticism of the industry. Biology is, has a mind of its own. It doesn't cooperate. You can't stay up all night coding and fix the problem just you know, by drinking Red Bull and, and jamming on your computer all night, right? Biology has a way of surprising you. And I think 
we have to come to terms with that reality. Can you too. be a little? I, I'm not sure I understand what you mean by biology. I think yeah. I do, but let's, for the sake of everyone yeah. else who's listening, when when you say biology, are you talking about the fact that you're trying to cultivate something that has a biological origin? And it's not just. I mean, it's not just cultivated meat. It's it's like fundamentally, if we break down what we're eating, you know, into carbs, into fats, into into proteins, right? These are things that we do not have. We have an understanding of them, but we do not have mastery over them, right? And that's that's the problem, right? We can create alternatives in certain ways, but they're not necessarily meeting all the requirements. You can add taste, but it's at the expense of nutrition, or you can, you know, make it nutritious, but it's at the expense of taste, right? You can't just, you know, move those dials in however you'd like and and come up with the perfect one-to-one thing. A cow is a result of millions of years of evolution, right? The things that are going on in your body and a cow's body and an animal's body is you know, infinitely complex. There are thousands of variables that impact that animal's very existence. And for us to try and be able to replicate that, it's it's difficult, right? It's difficult with plant-based products. It's difficult with cultivated meat. And I think, you know, navigating that challenge is, is one of the things that we just have to grapple with. So Jenny, I do want to ask you that question that I alluded to earlier, which is, you know, I can't even imagine what the options were when you all went vegan. <laughs> when I went vegan, the, it was, you know, yeah. it was very different from today. I had one vegan butter. I had one vegan cheese option, which I, in my mind now, generously said tasted fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's but, funny, right? Good revisionist history yeah, there. Exactly. Yeah. And when I went into a restaurant, 90% of the time I was relegated to a terrible dressing-free salad or French fries. fries. Yeah. And even then it was a little tricky, right? So I feel like today I walk into a grocery store, particularly in Southern California. I mean, like, I feel like 50% of the things are vegan or veg friendly. When I go into a restaurant, there's an entire section of a menu devoted to, to vegan Mm -hmm. options. So To me, I read those all as, wow, these are great signs. Demand is booming for plant-based vegan food, plant-based vegan products, even fashion, right? I go on to, you know, uh, Shopbop. Everything's faux, faux leather, faux fur, faux this. Exactly, because, you know, there seemingly is a very high demand for cruelty-free products, not just in food. So help me make sense of this. I mean, there's this demand, but... There are historical lows when it comes to people who identify as vegans. So there's a lot to unpack there, right? Uh, And before I unpack all the different industries and what we're seeing there, I I will add that plant-based dairy is the most established category when it comes to this industry. Plant-based meats are, you know, the newer version, so to speak. You know, we're less than 10 years into that category, but we're over two decades into plant-based milks. One of the reasons that people don't actually realize, the reason that plant-based milk has done so well is because plant-based milk is in the milk fridge. Placement, marketing, branding. They placed it as a (laughs) one-to-one. What most people don't realize is that the reason they're placed in there is because the dairy industry bought the plant-based milk. So Silk, back in the day when it first debuted, was owned by a dairy company. And the dairy company said, okay, well, we have this new fringe niche product and we need to make sure people buy it. So let's put it in the fridge. They literally sealed their own fate. Now 40% of American households drink plant-based milk, predominantly almond milk. And so that coordination with the incumbent in the industry was key to that success. 
we have not seen that coordination. You know, you did have um, just shy of 6% of Beyond Meat was owned by Tyson yeah, Foods. I was say Tyson Foods, yeah. Yeah, about six months before they did divest from that and sold it. So they were not part of that IPO. If they were part of that IPO, they would have made over $250 million. Sounds like a lot of money to us. Drop in the bucket if you're Tyson Foods, the largest meat company in the United States. So that is a huge part of why milk is winning. They also have the distribution channels. Mm. It's really, really easy. If you are the dairy industry and you already have millions of outlets and trucks and supply chains, you know, if you go to Danone on their dairy farms, uh, factories, basically, you can actually see that there's oats and products for their plant-based products growing on site. It's even coordinate. You can't even separate the two. Um, so that is very unique to plant-based dairy and is probably a big part of why you did see that success. So... We saw plant-based dairy take off. The other piece, of course, being that lactose intolerance is yeah. very, very prevalent. Not a vegan issue. Yeah. It's not a vegan issue. And so, you know, depending, uh, black Americans are well over 75%. You know, Asian Americans are 95%. Yeah, Asian yeah. Americans are over 90% lactose intolerant. And Gen Z is the most diverse generation of all time. And so that is why you'll hear that Gen Zers are largely not drinking fluid milk. Again, really important to contextualize this. We are talking about fluid milk sales. Cheese is going up, you know, yogurt is going up. Other aspects of dairy are going up. Muscle milk is a huge, huge popular product. You're seeing milk. Whey protein. Protein powders. Whey protein, you know, so they're finding ways to be nimble and adapt and use dairy in other ways. I mean, the dairy industry is sponsoring Twitch competitions now telling people that you'll be a better gamer if you drink milk. <laughs> This is literally happening. They're sponsoring marathons. You'll probably see it at one of your marathons coming oh, we up. See, we see a lot of muscle milk at yeah. the marathon exactly. finish lines. Yeah, yeah exactly. So... That's a big part of uniquely why plant-based dairy did well. You have both the health compounding effects with the diverse and, you know, increasingly non-white population that's taking over as a consumer group in the United States, combined with the fact that they have been part of industry from day one. It's also, you know, because of what goes into plant-based milk, you can keep the cost pretty low, right? Yeah. It's not a product that's, that's you know, expensive. Um, you know, the ingredients are, are pretty simple, pretty straightforward. So it was, you know, right out the gate, it wasn't overly expensive to, to the average consumer. Yeah. You could price it pretty similarly to milk. Again, which is a heavily, heavily subsidized product. You can get plant-based milks, you know, comparable to, to dairy. If you buy a carton of silk almond milk, you're consuming 96% water and six almonds. Mm. It's really cheap, right? I did not so, know there were only six almonds. Fun <laughs> fact, if anyone wants to, so if anybody ever tells you, but the almonds are causing the drought, you can say, actually, California's dairy cattle are consuming as much water as San Diego and San Jose combined. It is one of the biggest sucks of water um, nationwide because we have the biggest dairy industry here. And they're a big part of the almonds cause the drought campaign. And if people don't believe you, you can actually look up Almond Breeze was sued for calling it almond milk. And they were <laughs> in so court because yeah. there were so few. So in court, they provided evidence that there are five to six almonds in it. No wonder it's so low calorie. Exactly. Well, <laughs> it's that's basically water. It is literally water. Okay. So there's your there's your fun fact of the day. We got lots of misinformation campaigns that have taken off that we're dispelling here. Um, but to your question, like why is plant? Why does it feel like plant based options are everywhere? Well, plant based options are absolutely increasing. 93% of, you know, plant-based products are bought by non-vegans and non-vegetarians. So yeah, absolutely. Large, large chunk, if you, if you remove the dairy and the milk out of that, it is much lower. Um, but even still, lots of people that eat meat have bought Impossible Burgers and things like that. I think that we 
we did see a huge rise of novelty that has subsided. So those plant-based meat companies, you can look at beyond it's a public publicly traded company. Those earnings are not where they were a few years ago. Well, my stock price. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so plant-based meats, um, the rebuy rates are, are not where they would be with milk. Um, and we are going to start to see less plant-based options um, being on menus because there was such a huge uptick that happened in the pandemic. There was also the most money ever available to start a company during the right. pandemic. And so so many industries, like all of a sudden there was a million crypto companies, all of a sudden there was a million alternative protein companies. There was all, how many plant-based chickens suddenly were in your freezer at your grocery store within six months, right? So all of those companies, I can tell you, I look at their decks because I run a fund in this. All of those companies are, are not going to exist next year. When the money's flowing and the capital's cheap and everyone's partying, you know, all kinds of companies sprout out, right? So we now that we're in this recessionary environment, that's when the reality really sets in. You know, this is where, where you really see what consumers want, what they ultimately will choose when, you know, they're tightening their belts and they have to make decisions around what can I afford to do? What do I need to do to feed my family? What are, what are my priorities, right? So, you know, this is, this is more close to, to reality, but it's also when the best companies are made, right? Historically, Historically yeah. the companies that do the best over the longest periods of times are the ones that are started and grown in a recessionary environment, right? So ultimately, you know, we might lose a lot of plant-based companies. A lot of companies might go under, but the ones that survive this and ultimately grow through this period, they're the ones that are going to persist, you know, in perpetuity and, and be around for, for the long haul. So just selfishly then as a vegan, are you saying that, when I walk into a restaurant, I may not see as many vegan options on the menu as I did even yesterday in like five years or? Well, it depends on what the options are certainly, right? So I think they're going to continue to have plant-based dairy options. And that's a huge part of it. If you're trying to hit a diverse consumer base and not just essentially serve white consumers, that's a huge part of why you would have plant-based options on the menu, right? Um, even the data that came out from the Gallup poll this week showed that uh, baby boomers were twice as likely to be vegan than Gen Z and millennials. Which is shocking. But is it shocking? I mean, to me, it was shocking. I mean, I, as you know, a lot of my time is based in TikTok, and the demographic there skews incredibly young, between, yeah. you know, 13 to 18 years old, and they're all obsessed with climate change and they are yeah. all very at least you know yeah. on on their face they are they are very open to veganism or plant-based eating based upon the connection that they have made between big ag and the climate and for obvious reasons there this is the planet that they're going to be inheriting they care about this stuff and so to me it was shocking to, to find that actually the, the number of vegans is doubled when you go to my generation or older. Yeah. So first off, we must never forget that the majority of people go turn to veganism for health. So baby boomers, you know, great examples. My mom, you know, my mom is a little bit older now. She's a baby boomer squarely in the middle. She That's can't really consume point. dairy. Uh, you know, and her doctor's like, get a little heart healthy. That's my dad. Heart disease, yeah. you know, in the United States, uh, every 33 seconds, someone's dying of heart disease, which has been linked to red meat consumption since 1976. Um, so it is one of the big reasons I think we're seeing that generation. I actually firmly believe, and this is part of my funds thesis, that the graying of the population is very underserved when it comes to the plant-based market. 
market, I think we've r really over-indexed for Gen Zers. Everybody says, oh, it's the climate generation. But if you actually look at the consumer buying, the, it is not translating to what they put on TikTok. And we know this. There's so many phenomenons. It's the same thing as, you know, um, voting every single, you know, they'll, they'll all post about who they care about. They'll all post anti, you know, this political candidate or this political candidate. But then when push comes to shove, the voter numbers show they never went to the ballot box. And I think that's the same thing we're seeing yeah. with, with um, Gen Zers right now. I wrote an entire article called The McNugget Generation two months ago that I published on my LinkedIn, which was dispelling the myth of Gen Zers being this climate conscious consumer. Because first off, there's a plant-based premium and they don't have money. Mm. You know, this is, they have the least disposable income of any generation so far. So that's going to hit them where it hurts. Secondly, these are the first children to ever be raised on chicken nuggets, right? So it was in the early 2000s where we actually brought chicken nuggets into the school system. Now every public school in America is serving nuggets. And then that was not the case in the 70s or in the 80s or in the even 90s. It wasn't until the last two decades that that became such a proliferation. Um, so they were raised on chicken nuggets. It's also why the number one restaurant for Gen Zers is Chick-fil-A. Yeah. You see fried chicken restaurants opening on every corner. It's driven by the younger consumers. Yes, they're eating less beef. Yes, they're drinking less plant-based milk or drinking less dairy milk. But in terms of like processed meat consumption, they're going through the roof. And that's um, to the larger question of what are people looking for? People say, well, the plant-based meats are not healthy enough. Well, the biggest meat growth we're seeing right now in the United States, 7% um, annual growth is processed meats. Yeah. And chicken nuggets and bacon. Yeah. And it goes back to my earlier point, right? You know, the government picks winners and losers in this whole game, right? They're, they're subsidizing these foods in our schools that kids grow up eating. And then it's no wonder that when they're adults, they want Chick-fil-A and chicken nuggets every single day, right? This is what, you know, we're conditioning our society to eat a certain way and then being told that this is the natural way that human beings eat. It's, it's not the case at all. Mm. Yeah. And, and even to add to this point really quick, you know, the School Nutrition Alliance, which is supposed to be the watchdog for our public school system, keep in mind, first off, the public school system is a the public school lunch program is like a fifteen billion dollar industry. Yeah. It's big money feeding America's children, uh, and so many children, more than I think fifty percent at this point, are getting the majority of their calories at school. So what they're getting at school is driving the pallets of this growing consumer base. And who are the top funders of the School Nutrition Alliance? Uh, Pepsi, uh, Tyson yeah. Foods, National Dairy Council. That's who's funding that. And so it's no wonder why we are growing a generation that is, you know, subsisting on these processed foods. Continuing to subsist on it, choosing. You're growing a consumer base. It's the McNugget generation. Yeah. And they're using our, our government like bodies to do it. They're using our taxpayer dollars, actually. Let me be clear. Yeah. That is your taxpayer money. Right. It's also our taxpayer money when they all start to get diabetes and all sorts of chronic illnesses from this consumption of processed yeah. Food. You talked about how the government picks winners and losers. And you also mentioned that some of the best companies go through that crucible of a recessionary era, right? Yeah. And it's the survivors that come out and continue to subsist, notwithstanding all of the different ups and downs that any time of economic, you know, downturn can throw at you. If you had to pick the winners. <laughs> what are they? I want to know what they yeah. are. And I don't mean necessarily from an investment you know, point of view, although yeah. that obviously is going to inform your selection. But, you know, and you don't even need to pick the companies. I, 
even just the industries, like what are the things that you see kind of surviving what I think everybody would agree is sort of an interesting economic era that we're in yeah. post-pandemic? So, you know, I want to answer the question, but I'm going to dodge it just a little bit. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> I, 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 th- I don't think the, the winners exist yet, right? I think that's that's part of what we have to have to consider. You know, maybe those companies are in the baby stages today, right? But But one thing that I think is important to consider is, you know, we're building companies on top of a legacy infrastructure, right? And ultimately what needs to happen and how the real winners come out of of an environment like this is, you know, how do we completely decimate the existing infrastructure, flip flip it, you know, flip it on its head, head, build a new infrastructure, and then the future companies are built on top of that. So I'll give you an example, right? When cars were first invented, um, you know, they were People had horses, right? New York, everyone's everyone's riding around on horses and, and things like that. Um, the dirt, the roads were dirt roads, mud with tons of potholes. Suddenly, the automobile is invented, and people start driving them on these roads. And they drove like shit. I mean, you know, there's potholes everywhere. The cars are constantly breaking down. The tires are falling off. You know, things like that. So early on, people were saying. Cars are dead, right? No one's going to drive this thing. It, it, they don't, you know, operate on our roads. The infrastructure inversion that took place here was the paving of the road, right? So when we pave the roads, automobiles suddenly make a ton of sense. But not only do automobiles make a ton of sense, everything else, you know, becomes trivial on a road. Horses can also use roads, right? But now you also have bicycles and segways and scooters and all kinds of other things that never even existed before, right? So that's that's where we are with with food today, right? We're still talking about food in terms of our legacy systems, and we haven't yet built that foundational infrastructure that's ultimately going to unlock a whole bunch of stuff that we can't even consider today, right? What does food look like when, you know, we can create whatever we want, whenever we want, down at the cellular level, right? You know, we're thinking about, oh, well, what does it mean to take a cow and make a cultivated cow? But we're not thinking about what does it mean to have the mastery over proteins at the most fundamental level and then make custom food for you or for you or for me, right? That's what the future is ultimately going to hold for us. And those companies just don't exist yet. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you, do those companies really not exist? I mean, you're the one who's now looking through the decks of companies and determining whether there's a reason for investors to be optimistic about the future of food, which I know is is your major thesis. Is there something out there that we we can say, yeah, no, I see I see the pavement. Yeah. It's there. Yeah. And and one thing I'll I'll add to Podley's point is uh Henry Ford was asked your view of when you were first introducing cars. And he very famously said, and I think this is something we need to keep in mind with this conversation, um, if I had asked them what they want, they would have said faster horses. So the average person is not even in the space of what we are describing right now. The concept of we can make a meat that isn't a cow, isn't a chicken, isn't a pig, isn't a lamb, whatever it might be, because those were all animals of convenience. Um, We domesticated them for various reasons because of it was easiest for us or they had the most babies or they they grew the quickest, whatever it might be. Not because they're the best for us, not because we're designed to eat them, nothing to do with what is human element of what we're eating, right? So we are envisioning a totally new world where you could just eat a protein that's never been attached to a living animal altogether. And I think for companies that are focusing on that long-term vision, 
we need to identify very high value opportunities in the meantime, because these next 10 years are going to be very challenging for this industry. There's no doubt about it. We need to find products that are not relying on consumers to go to the store and buy them solely for food purposes. We need to start thinking creatively about what are those 2,000 plus ingredients that are in milk? What are those hundreds of industries that are relying upon the parts of the cow? What are the different valuable propositions that can be made by slowly but surely finding linchpin ingredients and reinventing yeah. The animal. So we, we domesticated animals and now we're domesticating cells and proteins and things like that. So I think, you know, the answer to your question is, you know, cultivation of ingredients and, and proteins and cells is ultimately going to be the future of, of human consumption. And, and I believe that because, you know, we're still early on in the S curve, right? So things tend to go slow, 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 and then boom, take off, right? All technology follows that S curve. Pretty much everything in life follows that, that S curve. So, you know, we're still, we're still on the front end of that. And we're still waiting for that takeoff moment to happen. You know, the, the fun thing about S-curves is, are we 10 days away from that? 10 months, 10 years, 1,000 years? Yeah. You never know, right? You know, the New York Times uh, early on before airplanes said, we're 1,000 years from human flight, right? And then, you know, it was, it was, it was within a matter of years that the Wright brothers were, were, were flying. And then in the, in the 60s, we've got jets. And now today, we've got space shuttles and you name it, right? So things take off very quickly once, once they do. So to me... That's the technology that makes the most sense because the price is going to come down over time. We're getting a better and better understanding of how these fundamental components of biology work. And when we actually get to a point where we master them, it'll be trivial for us to make them in abundance for human consumption in ways that we can't even fathom today. So those are going to be the long-term winners, right? I think they start with what we're doing today, cultivated companies, cultivated meat, other ingredients, things like that, where we're very carefully, you know, creating one ingredient or, you know, one type of animal. But ultimately, once we gain mastery over those things, we'll be able to, to create whatever we want. So I definitely want to talk about cultivated meat because... I'm still unclear what it actually is. Yeah. And, and I'm really glad that you're here because I think you're, you're, you're an expert in that. So maybe if you could just tell everyone <laughs> what is cultivated. I just read four articles on it and it was still sort of, you know, Byzantine to me. I was yeah. like, I'm not sure what it is that it is. One thing that was clear to me was, okay, there's still some small particle of an animal inside of it, it sounds to me. But if you could just walk yeah. us through in a very simple way, you know, what is it? Yeah. So the simple way I can put it, and obviously this is a very complex topic, um, we, we take cells from an animal right? And then we can use a certain type of media. Basically, you know, we put those cells in a liquid and that liquid is designed a very specific way that encourages and allows for those cells to grow. So we are essentially replicating cell division, cell doubling um, outside of an animal, right? And then using those cells to create whatever the meat is that, that we're eating. That's the simplest way I can put it. And this is also the way that we have been regenerating organs in hospitals for decades. So when you say regenerating organs, are you saying that there are literally people walking around with a heart that was like generated in a Petri dish? Well, or not necessarily. Not, not yet. Not, yet. <laughs> okay. not that to that level. But, but is that where we're headed? I mean, that's, that's actually where... That's, that's the holy grail. I mean, yeah. right? So, you know, when people ask me, well, what about like whole cuts? What about a steak, Right. 
we're we're trying to get there at the human level. It's it's very difficult to reconstruct something, you know, at the cel- cellular level where the cells are exactly where they need to be. You know, this is this is where it gets really complicated, right? Because your muscle is not just cells. Your body is not just cells. There's all kinds of stuff going on in there. There are mul- many different types of cells. There's, you know, extracellular matrices and all these different components that come together and interact in very specific ways that ultimately make up your body, right? Um, you know, when you're when you're cultivating cells, you don't have, you know, the the blood pumping through you that's delivering all the nutrition. So that's where that's where this media comes into play and things like that, right? So what we're doing now, the way I think of it is, again, we're early on that S-curve, right? We're taking some of the components, some of the behaviors that exist within a mammalian body, and we're starting to replicate those outside of the body, right? The bioreactor, the cells in the bioreactor swirling around, right? You can start to picture, okay, that's kind of like the blood circulating through a body and the cells getting the nutrients and interacting with the proteins in a very specific way, right? So, all of those things, and there are thousands of those things that go on in, in any body, right? So we're slowly making our way towards those, and that's that's what cultivated meat is, and that's ultimately what's going to unlock this entire new level of technology. So yeah. how is cultivated meat different from an Impossible Burger? And I don't yeah. mean the taste, obviously, you know, and but I, what I mean is like cellularly, if yeah. that's even a word. So um, an Impossible Burger is fundamentally made from plants and, and plant proteins, right? Um, the ingredient, the source ingredients do not come from an animal. Whereas with with a cultivated burger or cultivated product, the source ingredients come from an animal, right? So is there actually animal inside cultivated meat? The cells in cultivated meat are animal cells. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Now keep in mind, so to understand an Impossible Burger is plant-based protein with their soy-based heme that they add. That's the thing that makes it bleed, so to speak. That is going to be obviously a huge part of the future of the way that we eat. So I, one thing that we, I invest in all widespread, I do everything from like fungi and mycelium all the way to plant-based, all the way to, you know, things like what Pavle is working on. Many products, the ones that you're currently seeing um, on the shelves today, and maybe what the future of them look like could be a blend of all these technologies. It's not only one of them. So it's not just this cultivated cell product. It could be this cultivated meat plus the heme. Is is it what could it could totally be? I mean, what you're seeing in in uh, there's a company called Mission Barnes, uh, a friend of mine, Aton, and and he just cultivates the fat that goes into the sausage, mm-hmm. and so then he puts that cultivated fat, which is real pork fat made without killing an animal, and puts it into pea protein in the sausage, and that takes it pretty close to that sausage that people are looking for. So we don't necessarily have to envision these 100% cultivated products. Same thing with um, mycelium, right? Mycelium is the root structure that's underneath a mushroom. Incredibly protein-dense, delicious product. Meaty is the one that's uh, for U.S. consumers on store shelves right now. That product, uh, they're partnering right now, um, one of the companies with Purdue that makes chicken, and you can actually replace 50% of the chicken with that mycelium, and people don't even notice. The average consumer doesn't even taste the difference. So all of these different technologies, whether partnering with slaughtered meat to reduce the amount of animals in it, or partnering with cultivated or whatever combination, are all going to be aspects of a better way that we can eat, and they all drastically yeah. reduce. So, so you know... Whether it's plant-based or cultivated, you get the criticism. Why are we trying to replicate meat? Why are we trying to make it look and taste exactly like meat, right? It goes back to what we were talking about earlier. If you want to go through that 
infrastructure flip, the very first thing that has to happen is you have to have that one-to-one drop-in, right? People need to be experiencing something that they're already familiar with. It has to be easy. It has to be cheap. It has to be tasty, right? Taste is king in in this sense. Um, It has to be something that they already understand so that they'll get on board in the first place, right? Once everybody's on board, once you've got mass adoption, that's when you've got that new layer of infrastructure and that's when things really start to take off, right? So would you call this cultivated product, whether Mm -hmm. it's meat or the fat for the sausage, Mm -hmm. is it vegan? I say it... I say it's not vegan, but it's slaughter-free. That's how I describe it to people, right? I mean, we're entering new territory here, right? It's a a completely new binary, right? You need to understand that when the term vegan was coined, you know, at the beginning, um, it was don't eat animals because we don't hurt animals, right? So if you ate an animal, that means that you hurt an animal. So that goes against the philosophy. We now live in a world where you can eat an animal and not hurt an animal. Does that still go against the philosophy? Do we need to update the concept of, of veganism? In my opinion, we're asking the wrong question if we say, is it vegan or not? Because vegans are very happy to eat what they're eating, whether they're eating their Impossible Burgers right now or they're eating their lentils and and quinoa. Either way, vegans have been one. Uh, How do we get the 90, now 99% of Americans to get off of what they're eating? So because I work at a cultivated meat company, I have people come up to me and say, well, you're not vegan anymore. I don't give a shit if people think I'm vegan or not, right? What I'm here to do is I'm trying to remove animal slaughter from the equation. I'm trying to you know, eliminate animal suffering. The animal doesn't give a shit what label I am or what label you think I am. You know, If cultivated meat is the way that we can actually reduce and ultimately eliminate animal suffering, then that's what we should be doing. That's, that's the avenue that we should be taking. So perhaps you could help then with those haters. <laughs> There's many. Yeah, I'm sure there. And I can understand because <laughs> when I read the article in CNN, like one of the headings was, this is not vegetarian. I was like, they didn't even say not vegan. It's yeah, not yeah. vegetarian, right? Well, and then that occurred to me. The very thing that you're saying is, well, does it matter? Like what you call it? Like at the end of the day, what is the goal here? But, you know, before we talk about that, because I do want to get to what is the goal, what role does the animal play? Like, how many animals do you need in order to make, I don't know, a store full of this stuff? Yeah. So it depends on the technology. And, and you know, there's a few different ways that you can approach it. So so my company, Omeet, the way we do it is fundamentally different than the way, you know, the, the rest of the cultivated meat industry is functioning today. So there's this there's this uh, liquid called FBS, fetal bovine serum. It's existed since the 70s. It's considered the gold standard in terms of cell cultivation, right? So you can, it is literally baby cow blood, fetal cow blood. So it's extracted from a fetal cow that hasn't been born yet. Uh, When the mother is slaughtered, it's pregnant and, and they'll take the blood from the fetal cow and it's crazy, right? And they they process it, and, and they ultimately use that in academia, in research, cancer research. Yeah, vi- you know, vi- it's, yeah. it's 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 so certainly not cruelty free. Oh, is what yeah, I mean. Yeah, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah, you have to kill mom and baby. But also, just to understand, FBS is a massive industry that exists yeah. way outside of cultivated yeah. meat. And and look, like you know, it's it's easy to sit here and 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 just say there's this terrible thing that we're doing, right? But the reality is, is without FBS, so much of our modern medical understanding wouldn't exist, right? This is an ingredient that's not ta- hasn't been talked about very much because it exists in academia and in research. It's unlocked a lot of our mo- modern understanding of biology. Um, but now that we're talking about cultivating meat, 
it's a logical jumping off point to also start with FBS, right? So we know that we can grow cells in FBS, um, but we also know that FBS doesn't scale because you need a, you know, you need a pregnant cow. There are only so many of the cows are pregnant. It has to, the cow is killed before it's giving birth to, to, to the baby, right? All this long pregnancies too, just like a human. They only, you only get 500 milliliters of FBS in its raw form. Once you process it, it's even less. It's like roughly 300 milliliters from one, from one fetal cow. Right. Um, so, so, you know, Companies are desperately looking for ways to to move away from FBS, and they're looking for all kinds of alternatives. You know, trying to, um, you know, engineer specific proteins that are found in FBS recombinant proteins is what they're called. Things like that. Um, and you know, there's movement in that space. The the reality is, is you know, they're not quite as good, or if they work, they're oftentimes even more expensive than FBS. FBS costs $1,000 per liter, by the way, if you buy it from, from, from you know, one of the many websites um, that, it's, that it's on sale for. So the reason I say all that is our company found a way to do things a little bit differently. So essentially what we did is, is we manage a farm. We have a small farm where we have regenerative practices. We have 75 cows on that farm. They were rescued from slaughter. And once a week, we extract plasma from those from those cows from their blood. We use an apheresis machine. It's very similar to how human beings donate plasma. The blood spins out, goes back in. We keep the plasma. We process that plasma in a very specific way. Inside plasma, there's these. Uh, you know, we've got platelets, and inside those platelets are growth factors. Those are proteins. Proteins signal cells to behave a certain way. So, basically, we can get you know. 10 liters from one cow in one session, and then that cow walks away, goes back out onto the farm, enjoys the rest of its day, right? That's that's the approach that we're taking. So we still need these proteins to make sure the cells grow because there are thousands of them in, you know, in our bodies, in the cow's body. We can't replicate every single one of those, you know, synthetically, right? So, so again, we're talking about millions of years of, of evolution, um, and we use those to, to cultivate, to cultivate meat. Mm -hmm. And and that's the big difference with, with our company and what other companies are doing. But because we're vertically integrated and we're kind of bringing the cows back under the spotlight, um, you know, we, we've been getting some criticism for that, right? We're not buying FBS off the shelf while somebody else is doing the slaughter. We're eliminating the slaughter entirely, um, and using cow plasma to cultivate meat. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of questions. There are, yes. <laughs> okay. yeah. and, but I, and they're not really technical, but I do want to go back to this idea because I think it's important to really anchor this. What is the goal? We're not there yet, right? I mean, clearly based upon what you've described, that this is part of the flipping that yeah. needs to happen in order to get to a goal. I'm assuming then for you as vegan activists that the goal is to just eliminate cows from the equation altogether. We don't even have to have 75 of them around yeah. and extracting their blood on a, on a weekly yeah. basis. Is that right? I think long-term, yes, you know, but the, the question then becomes how close are we to that reality, right? Exactly. When, where is that takeoff point on, on the S-curve? If, if, you're, if you're defining the S-curve as, you know, a mastery of biology at the most fundamental level, that's the question. How far away are we from, from that, right? Right now, we know that there are these growth factors within the blood of an animal, and we know that those work very well at growing cells, right? So, so in the intermediate, how do we extract that with 
without slaughtering an animal, you know, without torturing animals so that we can eliminate the overwhelming majority of animals from slaughter and use that to create this, you know, this cultivated meat product um, and over time, you know, gain that mastery so that we can eliminate it entirely. So Jenny probably said something really interesting very early on, which is that and, and I might be paraphrasing very aggressively here, but <laughs> that we're not going to change the hearts and minds of people, that that's not where the answer lies. And clearly, you know, what I've heard from this discussion is that the solution very much depends upon our ability to change consumer behavior, mm -hmm. consumer demand. Doesn't that necessarily entail changing their hearts and minds to some degree? Why shouldn't we also be investing in educating them on, hey, like, don't be so mean to animals. Hey, like, what you're doing is very hurtful to animals. You can be a better person. Aim to be a better person. And here is something that will help you with that. I believe we should do both, and that's what I do, yeah. right? I have an entire conference and media platform that's designed to elevate women that are making a kinder world, and we focus on that every day. I also focus on the innovation side and funding the products because both are necessary. I think the cultural conversation around how we eat the way we eat and why we eat what we eat is really missing from a lot of this technology. Um, it's a, all right, I'll just like, the, the plain facts are that it has been a very male-driven conversation when it comes to the future of food. Uh, all the plant-based companies have largely been led you know, by white men, essentially, and they've largely been led um, with a male-centric view of it. Um, men are not who buys food. It's, the, it's just the greatest irony is that 93% of consumer food purchases are made by women. But we have not really been able to be at the helm of this conversation. Uh, and that's so true. <laughs> yeah, that's like, it doesn't even make any sense. Uh, you, you know, buy all the food in, in our relationship. In you our eat whatever I, I eat whatever she makes, whatever she gives me. Literally, right? Yeah. Um, even Very though, true in this house, yeah. too. <laughs> but it's true in most houses. It just naturally is just one of the defined gender roles that exists within not just the United States, but, you know, 80% globally. Women... Women and food. It's just the way it is. It probably goes back to some sort of nurturing and homemaking. I'm not sure, but that is the way it is. And so when we think about who we're talking to and changing the way that they buy things, I think that moms are the most underserved when it comes to this category. I think that we're forgetting who the people that go to the grocery store and pick the item up for 13 seconds are when they've got three kids at home and they need to grab the frozen pizza. That is such a huge part of it. I think we need to show empathy for that consumer. Obviously, my life is dedicated to animals and whatever way I can turn the curve, even if we, even if cultivated meat is 1% of the meat industry, that's almost 10 billion living creatures that won't die, right? So you always have to remember that North Star. And so meeting people where they're at, that yeah. is changing hearts and minds. That's also an empathy that I think doesn't exist in the way that it should in the vegan community. Um, it's something that I bring to my perspective every single day because I get pitched companies, mostly men that have these alt protein companies. And I'm like looking at it, it's like sci well, there's one called sci-fi foods, um, <laughs> literally, or they use these tech names and just like, I'm like, have you been to a store lately? Like, have you ever looked at what the counterparts are? They say like, 
Smithfield Family Farm. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, they have these, like, endearing, traditional kind of packaging. And and so it's, like, in a way, we kind of, like, forgot how people buy food and, and why they choose to buy those foods. So, so, yeah, that education and awareness is important. I also think targeting the specific people that are buying food that have been really left out of the conversation is important. Um, and I think that ultimately if you get them there with education and awareness, say they listen to this podcast, somebody's listening right now goes, you know what, Jenny, you know what, Joanne, probably like, I'm into it. I get it. I'm going to do it. They're going to go to the store and then they're going to need to buy something. And so if we're not meeting that consumer where it's at after they've been educated, after they want to make that decision, we lose them. Mm. And that is what is happening. Mm. I want to talk about your experience as a woman in a predominantly male industry, whether it's food or investing. I think they're both. Both. Yeah. (laughs) I recently read an article in actually multiple different articles. (laughs) It went a little viral. And I was uh, scrolling through my LinkedIn, and you are a master at LinkedIn. And I saw a very, what at first was very funny sort of situation uh, and then quickly became like really not funny and sort of outrageous. And it was your experience as the head of this fund, as the person who's evaluating potential companies to invest in on behalf of the, you know, the people who are investing Mm -hmm. in your fund and the very disparate treatment between yourself and Pavle, uh, you know, from the same person. So if you want to describe it for us, I, I, I think it can be hilarious, but at the same time, like super not hilarious and really annoying. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is an insider. If anyone wants to look it up, I did an interview with them. But essentially what happened was an insect protein founder. Yes, insect protein. So just to be clear, there are people that are building companies. Alt protein. Yes, it is. some. Well, this is an interesting thing. Some people believe that alternative protein should include insects. Some people believe, believe it should. Our fund thesis is very squarely, we don't invest in animals. Insects are animals to us, so we don't invest in it. So this person pitched both Pavle and I uh, within 15 minutes of each other on yeah. LinkedIn. I mean, it happened almost the exact same it's time. Literally. and It was you first, right, Pavle? Uh, I'm not sure who was first. I answered yeah. first. I mean, there's a timestamp, so. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so essentially, this person pitched both Pavle and I at essentially the same time. I responded first, and I said, um, hi, I don't do bugs. Best of luck. Uh, meaning I don't invest in bugs. It's pretty clear if you look at my website, the first word is vegan, <laughs> vegan women summit. And so Pavle, um, shortly after basically said something similar, you yeah, know, you just said, don't, I don't, I, I, yeah, I don't invest in insects. That's uh, the lock or something yeah, like or, that. Yeah. You said thanks, thanks for sending this yeah. in. I don't invest in insects. So essentially the same response. And I got a crazy unhinged uh, list of expletives where this man went totally nuts on me. I actually cropped it. The publicly available a message he sent me is not all of it. He said even more. And basically he said, you know, why don't you, you know, why wouldn't you just sit down and talk to me? Uh, and then called me a bunch of names, cokehead, nitwit, um, a whole bunch of terrible expletives because he was upset that I said no to him. And then at the same time, actually right after mine, After the expletive-laden message to you. A few minutes later, he responds to him, and he goes, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for letting me know. (laughs) Okay. So no expletives in the message to you. No, not to me. Not at all. And so, you know, one thing anybody that knows Pavel and I know that we are together 24-7. If we're not together, we're literally chatting all day. And I'm like, 
holy shit, what the hell? Like, what a crazy You mentioned message. him just out of the blue. Yeah, I messaged to him. I'm like, whoa, look at this. And she sent me the screenshot, and, and I, I looked at the name, and I was like, well, I literally just talked to this guy like 30 seconds ago, and I screenshotted mine and sent it to her, and that's how you got the two side by side. So just so that we're very clear then, this person sent a message asking to be considered by the two of you, presumably not knowing that you guys are married and would likely share these messages, but whatever. He sends this message to you. You both, I think, and I've seen the messages, you both very reasonably say, no, thank you. And literally within minutes of each other, he sends one message to you basically saying, how dare you? And another message to Pavle saying, thanks very much. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't design a better experience. It was literally right? like gender bias, like A-B testing. And it, the craziest part is, you know, pa- probably did some angel investing, you know, small investing. I'm a literal VC yeah. with like a $25 million one. dollar <laughs> You know, like I'm the, for like, I'm the expert, you know, bro. I'm wearing the pants here in this conversation. And that's what I got versus what he got. And so it went viral, obviously. I just, I just screenshot and put it together. I just like pitching a male investor versus pitching a female investor and just like what ended up happening and transpiring. It's only been like two weeks or so. I still get people are TikToking it. People, I was in the mirror, a tabloid picked it up and ran it. It was in fortune insider. And I sat down and they're like, Hey, does this happen a lot? I'm like, yeah, pretty much. And so we did an entire interview talking about, you know, how women investors are even treated differently. Um, only eight and a half percent of all venture capitalists are women. Uh, 1.9% of all investor capital goes to women founders. So we are really outnumbered uh, in this space already. And then on top of that, you know, you've, it's just, there's so many layers of complexity in this situation. And one thing that I really thought is like, okay, I proved myself. I raised this fund. Like I'm on, you know, I'm in the position of authority. And I've been really surprised that male founders have still come back with some of this treatment. It's not the first time. I, I, I get hate mail. I get crazy DMs. I mean, I'm sure you do too, but I get them quite a lot. And never. it's like he... Never. I show, never. Yeah, I show him these like messages I get yeah. and he never gets any never. of this. What do you think is the source of this? I mean, you can just... Obviously, it's misogyny. Obviously, it's yeah. sexism, but... It's so bizarre that this person was literally sitting at the computer and and on the on one hand, it thinks it's totally okay to send what you say as yeah. a completely unhinged message to you and literally seconds later sending a completely normal one. What is going on here? What is this phenomenon? Well, I mean, you know, like yeah. even if... We're not in this guy's head, right? But I think even if you give him the benefit of the doubt in every way you can possibly think of, right? I saw the comments trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. It's hard to raise money, you know, right now. He's got a million no's, whatever, right? If he he was the same level of aggression to both of us, I would almost say, like, that's better than... Oh, 100%. You know what I mean? Of course. Because then you could at least chalk it up to, like, you know, he's he's heard no a million times. He's had enough of it, right? But the fact that, you know, he was mean to her first and then nice to me after... You know, there's there's no other way to to yeah. you can't justify it. There's no way to explain it other than massage. And then he like sent me threats and then started commenting on the post and you know was like, I'm not sexist. I don't hate all women. I just hate you, you bitch. <laughs> oh. He literally comments that publicly, and everyone's like, like you just real? you just like proved everything. Yeah, like yeah. really, guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so. 
Yeah, I mean, this is this conversation. It's it's a it's real. This kind of sexism, the fear of rejecting founders, like it's a real thing that happens, and it's something I experience that he doesn't experience. Um, you know, compounding, we go into the food industry. The food industry is primarily, I mean, it's more than seventy percent male executives at the top. Um, they just did the top corporate executives in food, like the top 30 in America. Number one was the CEO of Tyson Foods, which is laughable because they're down 30% this year. But um, I think it was like two of 30 were women this year on the food executive list. That's crazy. Like stunning. Again, against the backdrop of the fact that we are the ones that buy the food. We're the ones making the decisions. Yeah. Exactly. So... It's, it's really unfortunate that these things continue to prevail. They're getting worse, actually. Um, in the last few years, investing in women has gone down precipitously. We, were, we cracked almost 3% a couple years ago, and now we're less than 2%. Why do you think that's happening? Why is it going down? Risk aversion. Hmm. Yeah, there's oh, less capital. and a recession and inflation and all of these things. You invest in what you know, right? And mm -hmm. so you think about if I am Denise Partake of Partake Foods. She's a great example. So Denise, um, I've known her for, for years. I knew her when she was hawking cookies in the back of her trunk. And, you know, she is half black and half Asian. So her kid can't have, la can't have lactose, right? Um, double combination in that family. Uh, her daughter has a bunch of allergies. And she's like, I got nothing I can send my kid to school with. And so she decides to create a company that's, that's cre creating um, packaged, healthy, allergen-free snacks that you go to the school system with and that you're allowed to have in there. And when she first starts to go hit the circuit of getting investors, every investor she's talking to almost unequivocally are men and usually white. And they're like, we don't get it. Like, what's, what's the big mm. deal, you know? Because they don't understand. Yeah. They don't have that lived experience. Like, this is what unconscious bias looks like. People think that bias and discrimination is this overt, like, I'm not investing in you. You're a black woman. Like, and certainly there are fringe cases that are terrible like that. But it's usually an unconscious situation where this person that is foreign to your lived experience is explaining something, in this case, a market or a consumer. You just don't have any connection to that. And so for her... You know, it, it, these, these cookies slowly started to take off. And within a year or two, she's like getting Jay-Z and Rihanna investing in her because they're like, oh, yeah, we also see the need for uh, dairy-free cookies because, you know, we also um, are black parents. And it was just so interesting to just watch these women I know go out there with these lived experiences that clearly show I'm a mom, I know the school system, or I know that the toddlers have this issue, I have other mom friends, and then they pitch these white VCs and these male VCs, and the male VCs probably have a nanny at home, they probably didn't do the, the bottle feeding, so mm -hmm. they don't know what infant uh, formula their kid's even using, and so they didn't get it. They didn't get it, you know? What kind of advice do you have to women in light of this, I mean, whether they're receiving DMs like you are, even though they're wearing the pants in the investor fund, you know, and they're the ones who are making these decisions, whether they are like, you know, the woman who went out there and had to pitch all of these investors who couldn't relate to her in any single way, how are women supposed to succeed when there are so many odds stacked against them? Well, we need more women at every aspect, right? We need women on boards. We need women running funds. We need women investing in funds. You know, almost every LP I have in my fund is a man. Just like one example right there. Women don't even, women have such a lack of 
connection to even the investment world that a lot of women, if you have any bit of extra money, you'll just donate it to charity. You don't even know about impact investing, right? Um, so to me, I mean, first and foremost, you're not alone. If this happens to you, you're just one of, you know, all of us are dealing with the same thing. We're all in it together. Um, there are more of us every single day. There's more women that are cutting checks. There's more women that are building companies. Um, we also have power in numbers. We are the consumer groups. Like, we have the power to tell these companies like what we want to buy. And you are seeing that happen. You are seeing, you know, more, um, especially in the black community, black buying power is just like quadrupling. Um, there's, there's such a huge uh, invest fest that's happening in Atlanta. I think it's like next week is huge. It's becoming one of the most popular conferences in the U.S. And it's all black investors coming to teach, you know, other black business owners like how to grow in their community. I think we really need to like support our own. Um, and I think that the thing that I do the most that gives me the most value is I talk to universities as much as I can. I go to student groups as much as I can because I was raised in like a tiny farm town. My parents have a 10th grade education. Venture capital was not a word that I learned until I was like halfway through college. It would have never been a career path for me. It was never disseminated to me. Most people that are venture capitalists you're more likely to be from Stanford or Harvard as a venture capitalist than to be a person of color or a woman. Mm. It is just a pedigree that's handed down, you know, generation to generation. Your dad used to invest money and then he teaches his son how to do it and then they become the new venture capitalists in the family. So how do we break that cycle? How do we break these conversations in the mainstream? Because we know that if we need more women on both sides of the table, it's even worse when it comes to getting more women investors. So I could definitely talk to both of you for another hour, but I know you have a very, very important red carpet engagement in your near future. I wanted to actually wrap up our conversation with something that you said earlier, Pavle. You talked about sort of these harsh realities and, you know... I think the harshest reality that anyone could ever be confronted with is the tragic loss of somebody that you love, somebody that you consider to be a family. And, and what I find you know, sad but incredibly beautiful is that from that tragedy, you were able to find this path that allows you to heal yourselves in a way that sort of spreads compassion in, in every single level. But I think that there are a lot of harsh realities when it comes mm -hmm. to the vegan movement. We've, we've seen that in the statistics that we were talking about earlier. And I keep hearing from you that we're, we're at that S curve. Yeah. You know, when is that gonna take off? Why do you believe, and I'm gonna ask this of both of you, so Jenny, you're next. Um, why do you believe that it's gonna curve at all? Yeah. Well, because we have countless examples of it throughout history, right? Technological innovations that have completely transformed the way we think, interact, see the world at the most fundamental levels, right? You know, back in the 70s, you know, there were, you know, highly regarded scientists that, that were saying, you know, by the 80s, it's going to be massive famines all over the world. You know, people are going to be starving to death in ways that we can never understand. Um, and we innovated our way out of that problem. You know, we got better at agriculture. The technology improved, and now we are feeding 8 billion people today, right? So, you know, sometimes people will say, well, we shouldn't rely on technology to solve all of our problems. But the reality is there are countless examples of, of technology doing just that. Human beings have this knack for, you know, 
playing at the margins, innovating at the margins and, and innovating our way onto new levels that we had, had not seen before. So, you know, whether it's cultivated meat or, or something else, um, I think the reality is, is we have a tendency to find our way, you know, towards that hyper growth S curve and technology ultimately, you know, leapfrogging us into something completely new that we can't really fathom today. Yeah. Jenny, I want to ask the same question, but with a little bit of a tweak, I think that sometimes I feel this personally, and I've definitely heard this from other vegan activists, and I don't necessarily consider myself an activist. I consider myself an advocate, probably at most. But I've heard this from people who I do consider to be activists is this sort of resonating despair, a hopelessness, Mm -hmm. if you will. And sometimes it can be very overwhelming. How do you find hope amid you know, really dastardly, ugly statistics, uh, poverty, consumers who are not making the right choices for their own bodies, for their families, for the planet. How do you continue to maintain optimism? Well, first and foremost, I think that it is human nature, as Pavle said, to just adapt and to grow. And historically speaking, We've won on most of the accounts so far. Uh, We have not failed. Humanity hasn't ended yet. And there have been many existential crises. And, you know, I think about we've had world wars. We've had so many untold tragic things that have happened to this planet. And we have prevailed. And so it is in human nature to prevail. I think in terms of us in the vegan movement, um, and I would consider, I don't know. I mean, I would consider myself, I think you're an activist. Very nice. I think that you're making an, an act of, of spreading the vegan movement in this very conversation, right? And so to me, you and and I and, and probably all of us at this table, we have learned an, a truth. And this is something that we now know to our core what the reality is. And now we are faced with the, okay, so now you know. What are you going to do about it? And to me, I think that there is this 1% of people um, that are going to likely have to carry the other 99%. And it's an obligation and a responsibility I do not take lightly. It's work that I believe will be my entire life. This will not end when my life is over. This will have to continue for generations to come. I think that for all of us that are feeling that despair, it's a long road. It's a long, long road. And things do not happen overnight. Um, as we're having this conversation, we're actually in the hundredth year since factory farming was invented. It was invented in 1923 in Delaware. It took us a hundred years to get to this system that we are now in. Uh, Arguably, as Pavle said, um, it did a lot of good. It allowed for us, it's a terrible system today, but it did allow for us to prevail in a modern society. And it's just going to take that level of ingenuity and that level of hard work and grit and a small group of people that are willing to make it happen. The good news is systems like this have a tendency to unravel in a fraction of that time. And necessity is the mother of invention, right? What is that necessity? We've got a growing population and we've got a planet that's warming and we need to feed all of these people, right? Um, I think that's the necessity that we all feel, right? We all see it, you know, on our doorstep. It's, It's here. And these are the types of moments where rapid innovation tends to happen. You know, we, we as a species do not innovate when it's easy and convenient for us to do so. We do it when we have to do it and we don't have any other choice. And that's why I'm optimistic because even though things seem bad now, historically, 
this is when the most innovation happens and this is when the big breakthroughs for our civilization tend to happen. In terms of the facts and figures, you know, there are serious, serious challenges that are coming to some of the ways that we are producing animal products on this planet. Um, cattle is probably the first that we'll see that's, you know, in some ways they're the canary in the coal mine. Cattle are facing insurmountable challenges right now um, because of, you know, we use 45% of the land on the planet to grow feed for livestock. That, like 45% of our crops grown are for livestock and we are facing so much drought and so much crop shortage that it's really hard to feed a thousand plus pound animal for three years. And so we are seeing it happen now and it can really drastically and exponentially increase in terms of those challenges. So not only do we need to be pushing forward with the better products, with the innovation, with our positive um, agenda, but we also have the backdrop of a spiraling industry at the same time. So hmm. there's, there's some wind behind our back in that regard. I love what you just said. There's some wind behind our back. I think that's really beautiful. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I know you have, you have so many things going on. If this is your chance to reach my community, is there something that you guys are working on that's exciting that you want to talk about or even another beautiful, hopeful, optimistic statement, whatever? Well, I'll just say that, you know, for every problem that exists, there's a solution that's already out there, right? Mm -hmm. So there are reasons to be hopeful. It's it's not hopeless. Um, you know, we just need to all show up and, and do the work. I think, well, to me, the most important thing we need to realize is that vegans tend to see the world in a very black and white way. And it's, you know, I have made these changes to myself, therefore everybody should do the same. I'm happy with the impossible burger, so you guys don't need cultivated meat. I did it, I did it, I did it, I did it. And I think that egocentric view of things is part of the problem mm. because you are one of 8 billion people and the world is not here to serve you. And I think a lot of people perhaps forget that egoism um, when it comes to this. And of course, I get it because I think no animal should ever suffer. I, f I philosophically agree. But my viewpoint is one of many, and we need to learn to meet people where they are at, and yeah. that is, I think, the that is what this movement is starved of currently. Yeah, 100%. That absolutism, I think, is causing more pain than there needs to be. There's a lack of empathy. We're putting all the empathy towards the animals, but not the human beings as well that are part of this conversation, and we just need to learn that we are we're a little ahead of our time i think that all three of us perhaps were born a little bit early on the timeline we are from a world that isn't yet in existence but because we ended up here we're here to build it mm, i think that's beautiful and i would just say that you can empathize with someone without agreeing with them you can have very fundamental disagreement with someone that you can still understand and meet with and have a very productive conversation with. And I'd like to think that today's conversation was super productive. <laughs> I had such a blast talking to the two of you. This is exactly what I hoped for <laughs> and imagined. Thank so thank you so very much for your time today and for being so vulnerable and for being so thoughtful about these things and bringing that to this table. I, I could not have wished for a better conversation on these things anytime let's yeah. do it again yeah, we could go for again. we could go forever let's do a part two we, we always joke that our dinner table because this is what our dinner this table is what I'm talking about. Like, 
you should just have a microphone yeah. at your dinner table at all times. And I know. You start your own show. But, you know, just there's people like us all out there. And if we could bring these conversations to more dinner tables, we would all be better off for it. 100%. Well, I think we need to start like a supper club. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. totally. I know um, I know just the right people for that. Oh, so, but, yes. You know, community is important and, you know, we got to take our wins where we can find them and finding your people is so important oh my too. God, totally. Uh, and I have so many people that I'm sure many of your followers aren't vegan. I have so many f- uh, people that I'm slowly but surely inching them into it. And so it looks different for everybody. Everybody's journey is different. Um, the, the goal is that we all get on the path in the right direction, right? Exactly. Well, thank you so much for the thank work you. that you guys are doing for paving that path. It's really beautiful. And thank I'm you. so very lucky to have been part of this conversation. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Let's eat some muffins, except okay. for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it. I have to say, this was one of the most riveting and fascinating conversations I've had yet on this podcast. It's made me think about a lot of things, but above all, Despite walking into the discussion with a fair amount of pessimism, Jenny's and Pavle's enthusiasm, insight, and a stubborn refusal to give up, well, they filled an emptiness I didn't know I had with a great big bucket of hope. Thanks, everyone, for joining me for another episode of Are You Ready? with Joanne Molinaro. If you enjoyed this episode and conversation, do me a favor, hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Leave a comment, a rating below. Let me know who you want to hear from next. And in the meantime, until next week, I hope you have a lovely and wonderful day.